A couple of announcements. Uh, tonight is the last night to um, sign the petition to um, ask for our school district to uh, require by biological birth uh, the bathrooms within public buildings that children would use. And uh, if anyone has an exception to that, they would be the ones that would use uh, separate facilities. So um, currently, as it stands, um, anyone who identifies with either sex is welcome to use any bathroom they choose, and uh, we're opposed to that. Tonight, we're going to see this picture of uh, a balance of truth and love, that there has to, to be that. And so we approach that, and it's confrontational, and truth is always confrontational, carries with it confrontation. Uh, truth is never tolerant of a lie. And, and so when we sign a petition, it seems as though we're unloving, but the reality is we are loving. We're standing for the truth. And then I would also add that one of the things we desperately need are folks in the fellowship to sign up to bake cookies because we're going to do baskets for every one of the high school teachers in the district. And so we only have four people signed up for that, and that's a boatload of cookies for four people to cook. So we need some serious volunteers to sign up uh, tonight. So sign the petition and sign up to bake cookies, and that'll be truth and love and balance. Amen? And for those of you struggling, just remember Sunday's message, that as we're going through Romans 1, and it gets to the, to the word where um, men engaged in, in sexual acts with men, and it was shameful. The word shameful in the Greek means ashkazume, which just means uh, out of the schematic. And as we looked at Isaiah 9, unto us a, a, a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder. And it goes on to say, uh, to establish order and judgment and justice. And order is the schematic that God's design is what he intends. And when we talk about sexual orientation, the word for orientation is the, an ancient Eastern word that just meant to gain your orientation by the rising sun in the east, and then you'd know where west was. And, and so we gain our orientation not on the S-U-N, but on the S-O-N. As Christians... We have to remember that, that we hold um, truth, and, and the Bible is true. It's completely true. And, and we have a struggle in our nation today with, with relativism and this idea that somehow the Bible is inerrant, or excuse me, the Bible is, is, is full of error, or it can only be used as a spiritual book, but not in its entirety to speak into politics or government or, or society or, or science. And yet the Bible in its fullness is true. It's the foundation. It's, it's the bearing. It's, it's where we get our, our, our orientation from. And there's a battle in the church today for the inerrancy of Scripture. And, and when we lose that, there are no foundations remaining. And as we've been studying with this idea of the absence of a foundation, again, the illustration that when I raised my right hand to be sworn as a council member here in the city, I didn't put my hand on the Bible. And as I was swearing, it could be relative in that I can... I can interpret whatever word she's asking me to recite any way I want if there's no absolutes. And so even though folks don't maybe hold to the scriptures, and as we had Nick Kidwai, who's a Muslim who was in the second row on Sunday service, declaring before the council that I, I want to bring back where we put our hand on the Bible. Here's a Muslim man reciting our Sunday morning service. Uh, not a Christian, I wish it was, but it was a, a Muslim man saying that it would be good to have this absolute so that we're accountable to a supreme lawgiver. And when mankind is accountable to a supreme lawgiver, government is minimalized because man is governed by God. And, and, and the greater the government, the, the smaller the citizen. And when you have this liberty with license and you remove 
this idea of being governed by God and being submitted to God, created in his image, and all men are created equal, endowed by the creator, inalienable rights. They can't be taken away. You can't give them back. You have a responsibility to them. When, when you lose sight of that, then that license becomes, as every man seems right in his own eyes, and it becomes chaos. And when chaos rises, governments tend to push towards an authoritarian form, whether it be socialism, fascism, communism, and we lose these liberties that we've so enjoyed all of our life. And, and this is the battle we're in now, and it's a battle for the heart and the mind of mankind and also in our nation. And if Christians don't act by balancing truth and love, we can have what's called fundamental legalism, where you're so right that you're just mean. And, and you, you stand upon that, and, and you, you, you know, I believe in the word humanities. I don't hold to hum, humanism, but I hold to humanities. Humanities is the love of man and the inspiration of man to accomplish great things. I mean, what we saw here with this musical instrumentation and, and how the, the human soul has risen to this understanding of combining melody and harmony and all these things are a gift from God, and we need to celebrate the humanities. But humanism is where man is the center of the universe and God is removed from the equation. I don't buy that. We want, we want to encourage man. We want to have man blessed. We want man to experience the fullness of what God intends in this poema, these poetic works that God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in those. And we don't want to crush that by fundamental legalism. But in the same regard, if, if we're so entrenched in, in truth that we forget love with this balance of where we sign a petition and we bake cookies, if we don't have this balance, then we're just a clinging symbol and a sounding brass. If we remove the absolutes and we remove the truth and we just go towards love, using that as an excuse for an absence of confrontation, then we're also going to watch a meltdown, and that's not of the Lord either. There must be a balance, and the only way that balance is achieved is by us being wholly dependent upon the Holy Spirit and asking Him for wisdom. Every decision I make as a council member, I must be in prayer over. Every time I'm, I'm you know, when I'm going to work out at the, the gym over here, and, and the two owners, I don't know if they know the Lord, but every time I, I interact with them, I'm asking God for wisdom to minister to them and know how to reach them. Every issue we have, we must approach that in such a way. And so this is what we're going to see tonight is Paul is going to come into a, a number of cities and there's going to be a response to, to him speaking the truth. And uh, some will be glad and some will be mad. And before we begin the study, I want to read this to you. And this is Jesus' words. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sin. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Uh, I lost it. Where did I put it? I don't even think I have it. I left it. Doggone it. It's all right, bro. I know what it is. Jesus said, uh, don't be amazed that they hate you. The world hates you because it first hated me. And, and the idea of that is, you know, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And he's talking about man's peace. Man thinks peace is the absence of conflict. Jesus said, peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives unto you, give I unto you. Peace in, in Jesus' mindset is the presence of Christ, the Prince of Peace in the midst of the conflict. He is the orientation. He is that North Star. He is where we get our bearing and our direction from. And it's to him we submit. He is the word. The word is true. Jesus said, my word is true. It's truth. 
If we, if we err on that and if we apologize for it, and what happened to the church in the 30s, especially in the hotbed of the Reformation in Germany in the early 20s and into the 30s, is they, they had in the seminaries what was called the, the school of higher criticism, where they just tore the Bible apart through man's instruments to decide that the word wasn't inerrant. And they began to teach this in the seminaries. Existentialism started to infiltrate the seminaries. And Germany, within 20 years, which was once the hotbed of the Reformation, became an authoritarian government that was responsible for the death of 50 million people. Here we are in the United States right now, and we're at a critical juncture. If the church doesn't interact and confront with the truth in love, confront the world with truth in love, we will lose and a lot of us are saying simply, you know, and I think about it myself, I want church to be really cool music, and I want to feel good. And I want to preach a really fun message, and everyone feel good. And then I want to get raptured and go home. And that, that's the church. That's what we want. But that is no longer the case. The church didn't exist like that in the book of Acts when we get into Acts 14. The church was all about confronting a world that was upside down and needed to be turned right side up. And there was confrontation. And, and the darker the world is, the heavier the confrontation will be. And you're going to need wisdom and a dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You know, for, for years, I've been calling us to prayer on Sunday nights. I've been calling us to rely on the Holy Spirit. We're going to start doing what we call afterglows. We're going to start doing them at John Ockenbach's house, where we're going to wait upon the Lord for supernatural gifts to accomplish a supernatural task. It's beyond our ability to, to, to fix this. You know, 12 men turn the world right side up. And, and there's enough of us in the room to do it again. But if your idea is, I just want cool music and I just want fun messages and I want to be raptured, you're in for a world of hurt. Because the church is going to become... This is where we are right now. The Bible is no longer moving culture. The church is declaring that, that culture must define the Bible. And we're bending to that in the church. And we're removing the authority of the scripture. Very few churches teach the entirety, the whole counsel of God's word. It's true from cover to cover. It speaks into every issue of life. And we as Christians must know this word. We're going to see in this passage also tonight the word disciple being used. These folks, all they witnessed was Paul being stoned and left for dead. And, and when he left that city, they were disciples. They didn't go through, you know, year-long classes and, and, and quads. What they witnessed was a man who taught the truth and acted upon it. There's nothing more powerful in teaching somebody than applicational truth. Once you learn it, apply it. It's like the blind man when they said, was it your sin or your parents' sin that caused you to be blind? He says, look, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I do know this. I once was blind, now I see, and that guy Jesus over there did it. He testified to what he did know. And he was facing the Pharisees to do it. And he confronted them with that truth. That's what we're called to do. You're responsible for what you do know. And you must apply it. And this is what we see with the Apostle Paul. And so tonight we're going to take a look at this passage. Before I read the passage, let's pull up the map if we could. Do you have that map, Sam? <clears throat> I know I caught you off guard a little bit. I want to walk you through the, the map that we have up here. I don't even know if I... Yeah, I left a whole set of notes up there. Um, so the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 went from Antioch and traveled to Salamis and then also to Paphos. And we remember that there he contended for the heart and the soul and the mind of Sergius Paulus, who was the proconsul 
of the island of Cyprus. He was the Roman governor of the island of Cyprus. And there was a man there by the name of Bar-Jesus. His Greek name was Erasmus. And he was a false prophet. It also said he was a sorcerer. And he was contending with Paul and Barnabas for the mind of Sergius Paulus, for the government. Contending for the government and the authority on that island and the hearts and the souls of the people of what would be established. And so as he contended there, it was profound because Sergius Paulus yielded to Paul and Barnabas and became a believer. They left there and went to Perga. Now at Perga, we studied this, what happened there? Does anyone remember? Who left? Mark, John Mark. He bailed on him. He didn't want to travel up the high mountains into Pisidia and Antioch. He didn't want to go up there. He, he wanted to go back to his hometown in Cyprus where Barnabas was from. He wanted to go back where a church was already established. He wasn't up for the fight and he bailed on him. And so Paul and Barnabas went on to Pisidia and Antioch and we covered this, that as they went into Pisidia and Antioch, they went into the synagogue and there... Um, it was like turning, remember, it's like turning a light on in a barn at night. The rats scurry and the birds begin to sing. And so the entire town was divided. And, and the Jews and some prominent women were contending and angry with the Apostle Paul. And the people came out in droves to hear his message. And so there they stayed a long period of time and discipled them. And they left the city in Antioch. And now they're coming in Diconium and uh, into Lystra and onto Derbe. And these are the three cities we're going to see tonight when they get to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And it's fascinating what happens because we're going to find in this passage uh, another account in 2 Corinthians of the Apostle Paul's life. Let me read to you that account and then um, I'll begin with the study in Acts 14. This is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writing. And this happened when he was on this first missionary journey and also happened in chapter 14. He writes, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is unlawful for man to utter. Of such a one, I will... Boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. The Apostle Paul's speaking about a, some people say a near death experience. It's a death experience. Third heaven. There were three heavens. You had the, the, uh, the, the area above the earth, and then you had the stars, and then you had the eternal kingdom, which is heaven. And so here the Apostle Paul is speaking of having died. And we're going to see where that occurred in Acts chapter 14. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And we ask that you guide and direct us. Fill us with your spirit and Holy Spirit. Lead us into all truth. That we would apply this truth with love. We're grateful, God, that you've blessed us tonight with Chelsea and Mick and Evan. We ask, Lord, that you would bless their ministry. And Lord, encourage them as they just travel and it's hard to be away from family. I just ask God you'd bless them abundantly. Thank you for their friends and family here tonight and bless them and all who are present. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, uh, begins in chapter 14, verse one, it says, now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, again, this is Paul's, 
This is Paul's modus operandi. He goes to where he can find commonality and he begins to build on some of the things he knows. That's a great way to have a conversation with people. Find commonality. Paul being a, um, a Pharisee and a Sanhedrin, uh, highly gifted, uh, multiple law degrees in accordance with our educational system today, spoke many languages. And he was going in there and he probably, as we studied last week, wore the outfit of, of a Pharisee having studied under the greatest uh, rabbi of the time, Gamaliel. Oh, Gamaliel. And um, so he goes into the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed. The word believe means that they, 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 they converted. It went from their head to their heart and they responded to the gospel. And remember that the gospel that we read about, man, Brett, will you just go maybe look, see if it's somewhere up there. It's just, it, I don't want to cheat everybody. It was such a good message. <laughs> Oh, you got it? Thanks, Tony. Hey, Brett, it's all good. Stand down, brother. Okay. That'll have to do, I guess. Thank you. Yeah, John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And, um, and then the, the key passage that we studied last week, which is the central theme of it, was that there's a God of forgiveness. Remember that? Who forgives sins. And uh, the, the passage concludes in Acts 13 by saying, And now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. And then it goes on to say, But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. So they left there, and they moved up to Iconium, or actually they, they went down to Iconium from Pisidian Antioch. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so here in this passage, as we're, we're reading, many Greeks believed and they converted and they gave their heart to the Lord. And there was a conversion of these folks, Jews and Greeks, meaning Jews and pagans. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their what? We're contending for the minds of man. And how are people going to know unless we tell them and have conversations with them. And yes, you're going to face confrontation. Some will believe and some won't. But truth demands confrontation. And I think the body of Christ is afraid of that today. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly. So they're speaking truth boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, signs and wonders weren't done in the other cities that Paul had traveled to, and certainly not in Pisidian Antioch. But the signs and wonders are being done in Iconium. And one particular sign and wonder was done that was pretty spectacular. And we're going to see that in a moment. Now, we, we speak, and this is, this is what's lacking in the church today, because... We have a number of churches that believe the gifts aren't for today, but the Bible says the word and power. They go hand in hand, just like love and truth go hand in hand. It's a balance. As I've often said, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. There needs to be a balance. You speak the truth in love. And that has to be done through the Holy Spirit. And the, the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifting of the Holy Spirit presents to us supernatural gifts to accomplish a supernatural task. We can't do this on our own. There's no way that you're going to be able to navigate the wiles of the enemy. First of all, the Apostle Paul had to face um, Bar-Jesus, and so did Barnabas on the island of Cyprus. 
he had to have wisdom on how to contend for Sergius Paulus and even how to get into the court of Sergius Paulus. And then he had to deal with Perga and the way that the enemy tried to attack him there was to divide the forces and cause him to be discouraged because Mark left. And now when they come to Iconium, now they're going to have to contend with a division in the city. And Paul needs this wisdom. And as he's preaching this word, the rats are getting angry and the birds are starting to sing. And as I've said, wherever Paul went, there was a, either a revival or a riot or both. In this case, there's going to be both. And, and, and this is going to be an awful situation. Now, mind you, this is his first missionary journey. He's got three more. After this journey, I'm, I would be done. That's how I felt at 2 o'clock in the morning after the election of the assembly. I, I didn't want to do it anymore. But that's not an option, and quitting's not an option. God's called us to it. And so here, he grants them signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, you can imagine Paul and Barnabas witnessing these signs and wonders. I've witnessed the, the gift of tongues used with the gift of interpretation that absolutely blew my mind and caused me to worship the Lord. I've seen the gift of prophecy and a word of knowledge that was just fascinating. Um, this morning, uh, I flew in last night from South Carolina. I got home at 2 o'clock in the morning, which was 5 o'clock in the morning, South Carolina time. I had to be up by 6 to be at the, the city employee's uh, Christmas party at the library at 7. And I was really tired, and I was kind of in a dream state, and, I, and my alarm had gone off, and, and I was still kind of sleeping, and I was having a dream. And in the dream, um, there were two men, and my father was there, and my son. And the men were talking to me, and I understood it, and I knew what needed to be done. And Michael chimed in to say something, and I said, Michael, stop. You need to be quiet. And my dad, when I said that, looked at me like, son, you got to be nicer to him. That was the dream. And I woke up to Michael coming into our room. Now, this is reality. He comes into the room to use the shower because he has to get up early for school. As he comes in, I said, son, you got to take a quick shower because I got to use that. I got to get to the, you know, to the meeting. And now I've been gone for two days. They haven't seen me. And that's the first words I had with my son. And my wife is awake next to me and she nudges me. And it's like the Lord was speaking to me that my son needs to be loved on. And I said, son, come over here. He comes over and I gave him a hug. I said, I love you. I missed you. And, and it was really sweet. And it was, it was the Holy Spirit interceding through a dream just to speak to my boy. And using my dad, like Joseph, God works that way. You can write it off and dismiss it and just say, no, this is how the Holy Spirit works. And these are things that we're going to need to press into in the coming days as the challenges will be greater. And here, signs and wonders were done, granted by God. Verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided. Isn't that true about every city? Isn't that true about politics? <laughs> All right. Part sided with the Jews and part sided with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe in the cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. Let me stop there for a minute. We're dealing with humanism. We're dealing with a man-centered worldview that has permeated every vestige of our culture. We remain a, a remnant of a church that is rapidly falling apart. Um, we look at Calvary chapels, and for, for 50 years we've been preaching the gospel and watching conversions. 10,000% growth since 1966. California, as I've said before, had the eighth greatest economy in the country. 
We were debt-free. Reagan was governor. There were no abortions to speak of. Marriage was flourishing. Families were flourishing. It was a great place to be in 1966. And Calvary Chapel started. And 1,500 churches have been planted by Calvary Chapel in the last 50 years. Four of the 10 largest churches in America are Calvary Chapels. We have the Harvest Crusades with Greg Laurie. We've been preaching the gospel. We've been watching people get converted. And all the time, we've removed ourselves from confrontation in the civic arena and what has occurred because we've been unwilling to confront in truth and in love the civic arena, what has occurred. California has the highest debt of any state in the union. You take the next largest debts of the next four states combined, doesn't equal California. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. More people have left the state than came here during the Dust Bowl. We, we are imploding. We have the 11th largest economy in the world. As I said before, we have the highest debt. We lead the country in abortions. Ponder that for a minute. We are worse than Nazi Germany. Christians don't care. We're not moved by that. Nobody's protesting. Every day, 900 babies taken out. Nobody cares. We, we get eviscerated in the editorials and nobody responds. Our government is silent with no, no presenta- representation of Christians. And, and we ha- we're the authors of transgender bathroom bills. We can't even get people to sign a petition. We, we're the authors of no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce. What does that say to our children? And we just... You can enter in, you can enter out, and it's nobody's fault. And the kids are going, wait a minute, my family just got ripped apart. Where, where do we contend for truth and love? And in the absence of that, this is what's happening. And you know what? When you step into the city, the city will be divided. It will be divided. But we're contending for truth. We do it lovingly, but love doesn't mean the absence of confrontation. Is that settling in? Yeah. Okay. And so here the city is divided. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. Now, there was, there was no synagogue there. This was an outpost town. This was, you know, Tatawine, Tatooine or whatever it is in Star Wars. I mean, this was, this was out there. And there was no synagogue, no churches, and, and all they had left as far as a vestige was um, uh, Roman worship of, of previous Greek gods. And, and so watch what happens in Lystra, verse 8. In Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. And you can imagine the atrophy. His legs probably looked like toothpicks. It hadn't worked since he was born. This man heard Paul speaking, and Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leaped and he walked. I, I, I have to tell you, Paul looks at a man and he sees faith in his eyes. Now, people would say, well, this is faith healing him. 
you know, faith works in a multitude of ways. It could be the faith of others. It could be your faith. Uh, all I know is God gives us faith. To every man is given a measure of faith, right? Paul sees that measure of faith in the man's eyes. The Holy Spirit confirms him. He looks at him. He stands up. He says, stand up. Now, I've told you this often where, you know, Peter looks at a guy who's crippled at the, at the pool, and he says, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and he grabs him and lifts him up. Uh, I can imagine doing that and just dragging the guy across the floor, you know? And I would be paralyzed. I will not do that unless God has spoken. There are times where the Lord has told me, told me that somebody is healed. And it has been the case. Now, I, that, is, that has been the exception that more than the rule. Very limited in those opportunities and those times. But when it happens, I'm encouraged. My faith is strengthened. I see the power of God moving. And it's to trust him in these times. And, and oftentimes, as I've shared with you before, when I went in to go see Marty's wife, and, and Gwen had this open wound on her foot, and, and the infection was traveling up her leg, and it just looked awful. And, and the, the, diet, the, the prognosis was probably amputation, and, um, and she was so frail, she wasn't going to live. I, I just didn't see that. And I was burdened for Marty, and we had to have a hard discussion together, and it was awful. And, and after we did all the due diligence and, and I was with Marty, Marty, bless his heart, said, Rob, would you pray for Gwen? And he always carries oil. I never do. And I went through the ritual. I put the oil on my finger and I put a little on Gwen's head. I laid my hands on her and I prayed for her. And while I prayed for her, I, I was doing what I was told to do. There was no move of my heart. I was disconnected from what I was doing. I was just going through the motions. That's, that's truth be told. And if you have a problem with that, find a new pastor. <laughs> I'm being honest. I'm laying my hands on and praying for her. And wouldn't you know that the infection reversed? She didn't need surgery. Uh, she, she left the hospital, right, Marty? It was a miracle. That, that's the only way to describe it. It was a complete miracle. Um, there's there's a, a brother in our church that is dealing with cancer, and it's riddled his body. And another brother who shared with me who was just so in tune with, with the, the abuses of the, of the Holy Spirit and how churches have abused that, but has a balance and, and loves the Holy Spirit and wants to see him work and, and longs for the gifts of the Holy Spirit and is so gifted in, in connecting people with that. And he came to me and said, God gave me a word. He's going to live. Now, he didn't give me that word. I can't utter that. That's why I'm not using a name. If he wants to get from the pulpit and say it, he may. But I will say this, I have no reason to doubt that man's word. Everything I've ever seen come from him has been amazing. And so these are pictures that we see. And so they're preaching the gospel there. There's no, there's no synagogue. And this man is healed as, as the apostle Paul sees faith in his eyes. Verse 11, now when the apostles saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the people said this. They raised their voices and sang in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now what had happened is previously um, other extra-biblical writings say that Zeus had visited this town you know, hundreds of years earlier and he had come to the town and found no one to greet him or give him the gift of hospitality save but for two people. And he wiped the city out and left these two people alive. And he had performed you know, godlike things in the city. And, and so they were mindful of that. It's a lot like the old story of Captain Cook. And I don't know that's necessarily true. There's a variation in history in relation to it. But they said of Captain Cook that when he arrived uh, on the island of Kauai, 
um, they, they considered him the god Lono. Ono, Lono, what? Oh no. They considered him a god. And he kind of liked it. And the, the sailors had their way with the women and they just looked at them as, you know, servants of this god. And, and Captain Cook took another man's wife, so the story goes. And, and the man was angry. And as Captain Cook was warming himself or cooking or something, sitting in a circle, he came up with a big club and hit him on the head. And it knocked him out. He came to and he was groaning and blood was coming from his skull. And uh, the chief said, you know, gods don't bleed and they don't moan. And then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose and they killed him. And he died there on the island of Kauai. Uh, That's one story. That's one way it goes. But the idea is uh, they're calling him gods. And this is what happens. Watch. They raise their voices in the Lyconian language saying the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas called they called Zeus and Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. I've shared this with you before. You know the term hermeneutics, it's used in seminaries. It's the gift of preaching um, to, to take heavenly truths and communicate them to man. Hermes was a mythical creature that communicated the words of, of the gods to man. And so Hermes, the spokesman, Paul, the eloquent hermeneutical preacher is considered to be... Um, to, to be Hermes, and they, they call Barnabas Zeus, probably because he's just quiet, and they just don't want to mess with him. And they looked at Paul, and he's articulate, and he's speaking, and they just think, well, he's the representative because the language was a little distorted, and they just considered him to be Zeus himself. And that's kind of sad because it had been switched. Um, Barnabas would have been the one who had been stoned and left for dead. Watch this. Then the priests of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So this guy hears word of it. He goes, Zeus is in town, and he brings the, the oxen to go slaughter him, and they're going to have a big celebration, and here's Barnabas, and they're, they're calling him Zeus, and he's trying to piece it together. And Paul, and here's another temptation of how the enemy works to derail the church, flattery. You are the most amazing preacher. You are the most amazing servant of the Lord. You, when you speak, one of the things that frustrates me more than anything, and a lot of you understand, is when people say, Pastor, you made the word come alive. You couldn't insult me in a greater way. No man causes a word to come alive. The scripture says the word of God is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. God causes us to come alive to his word. And the story that Don McClure, my pastor, used to share is when he bought that car and all the, his kids were in the back seat, and it was right when power windows had come out. And the kids were in the back seat and they're saying, Dad, where's the knob to roll the window down? He said, oh, boys, this is a very special car. You must command the windows to go down. And the first boy goes, window down. He says, no, son, say it with authority. And he goes, window down. And he takes the master, and they go, ooh. And he yells, the other kids are going, window up. And And they're just screaming this. And he shared this illustration. He looked out at a room full of pastors and he said, When somebody commends you on the sermon, you know what they're commending you on? The way you said window down. Because it's the Lord who controls it. All you're doing is just expelling air and moving your lips. It's God who's putting life to the words. We are harbingers. We we are dispensers. Excuse me, not harbingers. We're dispensers of truth. And, And we're the antidote to a fallen world of deceit and lies. And we contend with the enemy of man. And that's what we're called to do. Well, people want to somehow place that authority upon man. Man doesn't have it. 
Let no flesh be glorified in his presence. And this is a temptation of the ministry. And when you're young in the ministry, and I love having conversations with some of our younger pastors, they get a chance to be behind the pulpit. They see people respond, kind of gets to them a little bit, and they kind of walk, you know, and then they go through this crash, and they start to see the vileness of their life, and and I just share with them, you know, I, I remember working for Don and just wondering, either this man doesn't have good discernment or... Um, he is completely lost. Why would he ever assign me to do this? Because when I'd step out of that pulpit, I would implode spiritually. I would struggle through all these things. And it was God's way of just crushing you and making you humble and, and just saying, you don't mess with my pulpit. You don't, you don't mess with this. And, and no flesh will be glorified in God's presence. You know, mankind can be enthralled with the imagery that, I mean, we we see a basketball arena filled with people on a Sunday, and a man comes out and tells a joke, and has everyone hold up their Bible. This is my Bible. I believe what it says, it it says, and goes through the whole thing, and then never uses it. Just puts it aside and tells everybody nice stories and concludes so that everybody can get back to football. And I look at that, and I think, well, that's not what God intended, God intends that we teach the whole counsel of God's word and we contend for truth and we create disciples. And so here, they're worshiping Paul and Barnabas and this is an attempt by the enemy to try to derail them. He couldn't do it by threats. He couldn't do it by division. He couldn't do it um, by a false prophet. And now he's trying to do it by flattery. And every one of these, there's a sin that easily besets you. No temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. If you're dialed into the Holy Spirit and and spending time in prayer and in his word, you'll navigate the minefield of all the enemy's tactics. But I'll tell you what, the minute you pull your nose out of the word, you crash. I can go from, from saint to wretched sinner in seconds. Maybe you're better than me, but that's my time frame. If they could make a car that was that fast. When Paul and Barnabas heard this, verse 14, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with you, the same nature as you, and preach to you what you should, uh, and, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. What is he doing? He's contending for a supreme lawgiver. He's contending for a supreme authority that all men submits to. He's contending with humanism. He's contending with man made governments, man made religions. He's contending with them in truth, and he's putting his life on the line. He's tearing his clothes. He's beseeching them. He's exhorting them. He's begging them. Get your eyes off of me. Put it on the Lord. Where are those preachers today? Where are those Christians today? That they would contend and step into the middle of the fray and stand for that. And that's what Paul's doing here. And he's begging them. He says uh, in... Verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. And you look at the Tower of Babel and they built that thing and they said, we'll ascend to the heavens. And God just said, this is awful. It, it can't be done. And it was all, it, it looked communist. It was all brick. And, and it, everything was orderly. I mean, I remember going into the Soviet Union after the Iron Curtain fell down. Every building looked the same. It was just cold and miserable. Man is just, when, when man is in charge, there's just no joy it just sucks the life out of, of, of operating in the, in the 
context of what God wanted. Don't you enjoy singing? Don't you enjoy playing your instrument? Would you want to be told what you can and can't do? That, that must be done for the state. You can no longer sing about Jesus. And we look at that, well, you know, man, I, I still get to play. It's getting smaller. The church is getting smaller. The walls are coming in. Unless you go out and contend, it's just that we, but I just want to play my music. I want to feel good. I want to hear good message. I want to feel good. I want to get raptured and go home. It doesn't work that way. That's gone. I'm sorry. We're the generation that must go into Lystra and Derby and contend. We have to go into the thick of the people and stand for that and point out that all of these governments that God has allowed are not the way. Verse 17, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. He still blesses man, even though man rejects him. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. They still didn't want to hear it. We want to worship a man. That's what, I, I can't for the life of me fathom and even in the evangelical circles, while people, while people are drawn to Donald Trump. Are you kidding me? He's awful. And, and I, I look at this and I, I think, he's going to be to the country what Arnold Schwarzenegger was to California. But we love him because he's a, he's a personality. He's a God with a small g. And, and, and we're, we're drawn to that because we see it in the, the tabloids that we read. I think about um, Ben Carson. Neat guy, moral man, Christian, unbelievable surgeon, highly educated and gifted. He's a good guy. Give it a rest, Bailey. Come on, man. <laughs> and, and, he, and, he, and I was thinking, as a city councilman, before every Tuesday, a week before every Tuesday, I get a stack, a big binder that I have to go through with everything that's going to be on the agenda. And I have to drive out to the locations of the issues that are pertaining to. I got to meet with people. I take phone calls. I, I got to get through this thing. I have to be educated enough to, to be able to vote properly. And, and I have to pray through every single aspect of it. And it is intense. And then you get into that meeting. And sometimes the meetings are three hours. Sometimes they're six. Sometimes they go to one in the morning. Awful. And, it's, and then you got to contend with the people who are in the, you know, in the audience, and, and it's, it's, in, it's, it's intense. And this is, this is the lowest level of the legislative body in America. And, and I'm, I'm like, wow. And, and with my experience, and I'm a moral man, and I'm a righteous man based on what Christ has done. I'm a Christian. The next time Dr. Carson is doing a brain surgery, I'm gonna walk in and go, Dr. Carson, I'm a Christian, I'm a moral man, I'm a righteous man. Could you scoot aside and let me have a crack at that? He would look at me like, are you crazy? And I would say to him, you're going to be commander-in-chief and you've never worked with a legislative body? You're a lovely man. But we're in a constitutional crisis. It's going to require brilliance to, to navigate through the mess we've made. And, and, and we have got to be prayerful to figure out how to navigate these waters to contend for the hearts and the souls of men. And what is the Constitution and why is it special? And so... Here, these men are begging them, but they still want to worship them as men. And that's us. We are always drawn to the celebrity. Always. We even want to make people Christian famous. 
We did that with all of our music groups. It used to be that a music group would come into town, hey, bro, I just want to play, hey, that's great, really cool. And now when, when groups come, not you guys, when groups come, they send you a writer. Is it this thick? You know, I, I, I only want leafy greens. I don't want any iceberg lettuce. I want to make sure that you have bottled water, and we prefer, you know, Fiji water, and, or, or maybe that with electrolytes, you know, smart water would do. And, and, and you're like, are you kidding me? And I get it that they're busy and they're traveling, but we've bought into the system of Christian famous because we can make money at it. And where is the heart to just lead people into the presence of the Lord? And, and God gave me this song, and I'm going to copyright it. No offense again if that's you guys. But the idea is freely we receive, so freely give. None of my messages are copyrighted. The idea is to minister to people, but we get into this celebrity mode. And I'm not saying that copywriting is bad in that sense that it creates a celebrity mode. I understand that people abuse it and we have to protect you know, intellectual property. I get that side of it. But it is abused in the body of Christ that we make it Christian famous. And so we have this happening and they're all, and what is Paul's response? What is Barnabas' response? They're pleading with them. They're pleading with them. And uh, in verse 19, I've got eight minutes. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes. Now, they followed the Jews and these prominent women from, from Antioch and Iconium traveled to find the Apostle Paul. And they're going to hunt him down. If you go on the internet and you Google Rob McCoy, uh, and even if you pay reputation defender money to try to fix it, you Google me and either the, the second or the third site is rightwingwatch.com. They have one person established to pick any time I'm in the news and to distort it and take things out of context to make me look like the biggest wacko on the face of the earth. And they know what they're doing. Anytime you're contending for truth in the hearts and the minds of men, they're going to travel from great distances to shut you down. I know what it's like to be besmirched. I know what it's like to be attacked. I know what it's like to, to have the words you've said taken out of context and used. And this is what they're doing with Paul. They cannot allow this to occur in their city. They've got a corner on the market. They don't want anyone to break that. And they come to Iconia, They come from Iconia and Lystra, and they come to attack the Apostle Paul. And so the Jews from Antioch, excuse me, Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul. And that's not a, a hip term for, for getting loaded. That's, that's tying his hands behind his back around a pole, tying his neck to the pole, tying his feet to the pole. And then people gathering the coats and the outer garments so you can get a good run on it and holding that stone and running up and just throwing it point blank at the person to crush their skull. And they just kept throwing these at him until he just fell limp. You can imagine Paul tied to that post, his neck tied to the post, his feet, and thinking of Stephen when he once held the cloaks for those to stone Stephen, the first martyr. And that's where Paul was converted, hearing Stephen give this testimony. And here Paul is just thinking, I deserve this. Lord, that you would count me worthy. That, that I would get to die like Stephen did, a man who touched my heart so deeply. And here they're... They're, they're, they, they kill him. They leave him for dead. They dragged him. And the idea of, of the passage where it says they stoned him and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead, um, it, it means that, that with absolute certainty they believed him to be dead. There was no breath coming from his lungs. His chest wasn't going up and down. His eyes weren't responding to light. Uh, he was dead. 
And this is where we come to 2 Corinthians 12. He's dead. I don't know if you've ever been hit with a, a stone this big at point blank multiple times by people who hate you. Remember Reginald Denny and the, the riots, watching him get stoned from the helicopter and the rock to his head and the kicking? This is that picture. However, when the disciples gathered around him, they gathered around him. They're just, what do we do now? It's fascinating they're calling him disciples. <laughs> They've already come to walk with the Lord. They're, they're in. You know why they're in? Because they're watching a man practically apply these truths and they're grounded. I'll tell you the best way to disciple somebody is lead. Give them an example to follow. Paul had Stephen. They had Paul. And so they gathered around him. And right then he rose up. And they were like, whoa. It doesn't say they were astonished, but I can imagine this guy just limp, dead, just bloodied, bruised, broken, crunched. It's, it's said that he lost his eyesight in this because in his later epistles he says, I even write with my own hand as though he's blind. And he rises up. And the first thing he does when he gets up, look at this. He goes back into the city. Is he an idiot? I would have been on the first train to, you know, East Jabip. He goes back into the city. Stop for a minute. Why? When you've seen heaven, you're not afraid to die. And you know why you're afraid to die? Because you and I forget that we're already dead. We're already dead. There's nothing mankind can threaten you with. Because when they threaten to kill you, what they're saying is, I'm going to send you to heaven. You're like, bring it on. This train is bound for glory. This train. Let's just throw that in there. Rose up and went into the city. The next day, the next day, I mean, that's 24 hours. I would have been, within five minutes, they went to, you know, the next day they departed with Barnabas to Derby. Barnabas didn't get stoned. You know why? He was Zeus. They killed the messenger. They killed the messenger. And this is the, the central theme of the, of the passage, and we'll close with this tonight. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in faith, saying, we must go through many tribulations and enter the kingdom of God. That's the, the key to the passage. They had preached that gospel to that city and made many disciples. They were there for a very short time, and yet they had disciples. They didn't go through a year-long program or a thick book or the navigator study. They had disciples. And you know why they had disciples? Because they had practical application of what they were learning. And they strengthened the souls of the disciples. They went right back down that whole trail, and they went to each of those cities, and they, they just fearlessly went in. People were looking at them going, Are you kidding me? You're back? I am. Where's the church? I want to talk to these folks. And when he'd walk back into that city, you know what it would do to the brethren? They'd go, Paul, if Paul can do this, so can I. And the idea for the body of Christ is lead. Take the mantle. Show your kids that truth is worth standing for. Make a practical application so they can have something to be proud of. Do it. When they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Talia. 
And in Perga, they didn't do any preaching there, so they decided to preach it on the way back because John had left and they'd had a little spat there. And then they sailed to Antioch. They went back to where they started, where they'd been commended to the grace of God for the work in which they had completed. They go back to Antioch and they go, hey, we're back. Remember you prayed for us? We were commended by the Holy Spirit to do this? Wait till you hear the stories. Paul, what happened to you? (laughs) Oh, that's later. But just listen. It's an amazing story. There are churches throughout the entire region. We raised a guy who had been crippled from birth. They called us Zeus. They called me Hermes. They killed me because I was a messenger. I didn't die though. Long story. I'll write about it later. You can imagine the church in Antioch going, God rocks. Yes, he does. And you know why he rocks? Because people led by example. They weren't afraid. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And they rejoiced and commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. And now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. And they'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples in Antioch. It was a time to refresh and rest. God will give you those moments. So I would just say this. And I love C.S. Lewis's quote. He says, pain removes the veil and it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. You and I learn a lot from pain. It's about time we experience a little bit of it as we step into the world and confront the world with truth and we do it lovingly. You know what lovingly is? Paul never threw a stone back, but he never shut his mouth. Don't move your fist, just move your mouth and do it lovingly. Speak the truth in love and confront what is binding man and set them free and they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Amen? 8.30. Boom. All right. Any questions tonight that I can answer? Yes? Petitions out in the foyer. Uh, Carolyn will be there. She'll help you with it. Anyone else? And uh, and Chuck, you also want to know where the cookies were, right? The cookie baking thing? You didn't want to know that. Okay. An honest man speaking the truth in love. Anyone else? Any comments? Questions? Disagreements? Yes, it was. Let's give another round of applause for you guys. I wish you guys were around more often, but you, you're just not around that often. So we'd love to have you back anytime, especially on a Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah, amen. All right. Lord, thank you for this evening. And again, we're just so blessed to be together. And Lord, I, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us and take away our fear. I'm not afraid of pain. And that we would confront a world in darkness and that a great light has shown, as it says in Isaiah 9. And, and those living in the shadow of death, to them a great light has been shown. And that is us, Lord, the mouthpiece of the living God. That we walk in with the word of love and the word of truth and the word of light. And that we are salt and light and we permeate and we radiate. We reflect the light of the living God. And Lord, may we never ever shrink from that calling, that high and noble calling, and that, God, we would be more and more bold as we realize there's nothing they can do to us. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So I ask that you would bless and empower and strengthen according to your riches in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.